0: This is Emma Larking. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the Australian National University and I love the program Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio. 8.55 on the AM dial. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, tatman Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood, let's get radical about philosophy. <laughs> This is Catherine MacDonald here announcing 3CR Radical Philosophy Program. It's on 8:55 on your AM dial, the fantastic philosophy program introducing us to women philosophers. And you're listening to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. And today I'm going to be speaking to Julie Bindle, who is an English writer feminist and co-founder of the law reform group, Justice for Women. She is an author of several books, including Straight Expectations. Also, Julie is a visiting researcher at Lincoln University. And she also, in 2010, she entered the Independence pink list as the 89th of the top most, um, the top 101 most influential gay and lesbian people in Britain. And also she writes regularly for The Guardian. And I'm speaking to Julie Bingle, who's just come out from the UK for a fairly quick visit, isn't it? Out here, mm,
1: well, ten days, and in between we went to New
0: Zealand for twenty-four hours. Oh wow! Okay, and uh, and you've had a, a conference, and you've got something else, another speaking engagement tonight. So it was great you could spare the time. To come into 3CR. Now, recently you've just made a trip to India to investigate the surrogate situation there. Well, I went to Gujarat, which is in the northwest of India. It's one of the most
1: religious states. It's a very interesting place for many reasons. And I was primarily there to do some research for, for my book on the international sex trade. There's a village right up towards the border of, of Rajasthan. Uh, in Gujarat called Wadia, and Wadia is based on prostitution. It's built on prostitution. Most of the boys are raised to be pimps and the girls are prostituted. But it's a long way to go for a visit that wouldn't last any more than a couple of hours because, of course, I had to get access to the village. It was quite a dangerous place to go, etc. So I was thinking about what else I could do, what other research I could do whilst there. And the most obvious thing to do... In Gujarat, if you're a feminist who's concerned about this kind of thing, is to look at the surrogacy market. India is the surrogacy capital of the world and Gujarat is the surrogacy capital of India. It is absolutely teeming with IVF clinics, with signs outside um, the doors which just says sometimes test tube babies where foreigners have, up until the law was changed a few days before I visited... Um, have gone for mm, probably the past decade in particular
0: to rent the womb of very poor Indian women. So did you have any trouble sort of getting in there? Did you uh, tell them that you were going to use their services? or? Well, I first decided to um,
1: go undercover, posing as a woman. I'm 53, I'm white, British, posing as a woman whose husband was pressurising me to give him a baby Uh, And that my husband was of Indian origin because, of course, since the law changed, the only foreigners that can use surrogacy services and the government made this change, not the clinics because of human rights abuses and pressure from feminists. So the only foreigners that could access these services are couples where one of you at least is of Indian origin and that you have some tie to the country and address there that you can use. And I was travelling with a friend of mine, Lisa, who is of Indian origin. So we said that she was my sister-in-law. And that's how I got into the clinics. But the reason why I decided to go undercover is because when I actually emailed some of the most notorious clinics in Gujarat, asking if I could go along, interview the staff, interview the... Perspective parents, maybe even interview the surrogates, I was told in no uncertain terms that that would not be possible. And it's clear that pressure from the international community, from many Indian feminists based in country and elsewhere, has resulted in the spotlight being on Gujarat and not in a good way. So my only option was to to go undercover and to secretly record.
0: It's interesting that you say at least one person has to be of, of Indian descent, but would they still actually be able to use the uh, the sperm and the egg from from white people, basically? Eggs, yes. You you have to be a
1: heterosexual married couple. The Indian government seemed to think that banning same-sex couples was uh, going to address this issue. And in fact, of course, the, the vast majority of commissioning parents are heterosexuals. I I disapprove of anyone accessing these services, gay men, lesbians, heterosexuals, but you have to have a biological link to the baby. So you would have to use the sperm of the husband and you would match it with the egg. If you're a white couple um, or a mixed race couple, you would match it with the egg of a white woman or an Indian woman or whichever woman you choose. In fact, you choose the egg donor from a catalogue because, of course, the baby is going to have genetic um, match. So if you decide you want a tall baby um, with blonde hair, likelihood of blue eyes, um, if you believe in the nonsense which is that intelligence is uh, inherited if you believe in the heritability of all kinds of issues, like sexuality, et cetera, then you can literally tick off each characteristic a little bit like Nazi eugenics. So what was really clear when I was there was how this industry is based on on class and race supremacy, as well as on the obvious you know, male supremacy, uh, and as well as on the obvious colonisation of of poor women's bodies. Indian women's eggs are a quarter of the price of white egg donors.
0: I read too that you were speaking about they had photos there of all the the, uh, parents at at the end, you know, after they've had their babies. But uh, with the catalogue, were there actually photos or was it just sort of education level, eye colour? Both. If you're shopping for
1: a baby which is what you're doing Mm -hmm. surrogate uh, commissioning parents insist that you're buying a process you're not buying a baby but you are you're buying a baby and if you're shopping for exactly the baby that you want then you need to see the physical characteristics of the person whose eggs will make up half of the genetic component of the baby so you can flick through these catalogues at your leisure.
0: Wow, that's quite incredible. Now, one of your topics expressed in your work is your disappointment in the, with the way the lesbian and gay community has become mainstream, an issue you explore in your book, Straight Expectations. Now, 3CR listeners are anything but mainstream, so can you tell us a bit more about this idea?
1: Well, the lesbian and gay movement was built on a radical notion that heterosexuality was, you know, a cause of women's oppression, but it was also a cause of of anti-gay prejudice, what some people call homophobia. And so both gay men and lesbians back in the nineteen early 1970s in the US and in the UK and elsewhere in these radical movements... Believed that we had to dismantle the system. It's a bit like, you know, Marxists wishing to dismantle the system of capitalism. We wanted to dismantle the system of patriarchy and of heterosexuality. And we saw the two as absolutely entwined, that they were indivisible. And then, of course, things went wrong because gay men, of course, have male privilege, although less than straight men, but over the women in the group, you know, there were stories of. Sexism of, you know, gay men turning up in skirts, knitting, saying that this was their way of dismantling heterosexual male image. And the lesbians were saying, but we're actually fighting against the insignia of our oppression. We don't want to mince around in high heels and skirts and knit. We reject that. We don't think that men taking up these characteristics or these hobbies um is revolutionizing anyone we want to see an end to gender stereotyping we want to see an end to to the punishment that gender is we don't wish to to perpetuate it so lesbians began to leave um the gay liberation front in droves and started you know their own organizations which didn't just look at lesbian liberation but that looked at the the, the liberation Uh, of women everywhere. Now, I didn't begin to... uh, My feminist activism began in 1979, so I missed gay liberation. But by the time I came into feminism, lesbianism and feminism were pretty much in the same pot. I mean, not everybody who was a feminist was a lesbian and vice versa, but we understood that the two went hand in hand. And we would reject the notion of marriage. We didn't want marriage. We wanted heterosexual people to uh, be denied, or rather we wanted heterosexual men to be denied the right to this institution that had historically been terribly bad for women. And, for example, when Princess Diana was engaged to Prince Charles, we went around wearing badges like, don't do it, die, and why be a wife? And then, of course, what you've got now is a complete turnaround. You have lesbians rushing To get married in churches, in town halls, wearing matching wedding dresses or the kind of horrific butch femme outfits where there are rings exchanged, best man and best person speeches. There's the first dance. There's the coronation chicken. There's the cake. I mean, just an awful replica of an institution that we have derided, we've poked fun at and we've critiqued as feminists for a long time. So, so I think that it's quite plain to see that what our very conservative governments have done in the Western world is throw a few crumbs at the gay community, as they would put it, which is legislative equality and marriage in order to placate, in order to pull in gay male conservative voters and I think in order to de-collectivise us to depoliticise us. I don't mean it's like some kind of conspiracy, but it's been what gay men have traditionally wanted for a long time. They've wanted just conservative normalcy. And I think lesbians got tired and became slowly de-radicalised and so have just opted for the same as heterosexuals rather than a different way of living.
0: There's there's also, I don't know if you're familiar with the changes recently to Centrelink and it's people that are used to just be heterosexuals that uh, when one wasn't working the other one was yeah, bound to um, support them but now there's also been changes for same-sex couples as well financially. And do you think that has an, has an impact on people, especially when, especially with women who are lower paid anyway, <clears> when you've got two women living together and one's out of work and the other one is just supposed to support them financially because they have sex occasionally? Yes.
1: Look, when you want equality, when you ask for equality rather than liberation, you have to put up with what you get. And so unfortunately we have got equality and sameness ...with very dysfunctional people, heterosexuals. So the marriage benefits, so-called benefits... ...to young lesbians, young gay men... ...really are quite sparse if they're poor... ...if they are in any way different from the kind of very straight-acting... ...very respectable, older, solvent, same-sex couples... You know, homeless gay men, um, homeless lesbians, sexually abused young gay and lesbian people do not benefit from this at all. In fact, for the first time in history, we now have the good gays and the bad gays. We were all the bad gays. And we've now got to a situation where we are not concerned with our youth within the community We're not concerned with those who are marginalised beyond the anti-lesbian prejudice and the anti-gay prejudice that we still face. We have a situation where in the UK, for example, we have stopped campaigning for the ill treatment and human rights abuses of lesbian and gay asylum seekers coming into the country who are being returned to certain torture, death um, and poverty Because why should we? We now have total legislative equality. But what this has done, in my view, and in the view of other critical feminists, of other feminists that are sick and tired of hearing how liberated we are, is that we have a huge gulf between the social acceptance and social liberation that we should be fighting for and the legislative reality. The law is a million miles away from culture. There is still the most horrendous oppression of marginalised, particularly young lesbians and gay men, who don't have the finance to cushion them and who don't have the community or the housing that protects them.
0: And even even if it doesn't affect some people when they're younger because they've been working all their lives, wait until they retire and they've got to share a pension with their partner Mm -hmm. because it's quite a a large slice is actually taken out just because two people are, are living together.
1: Feminists have fought
0: against this shared pension,
1: this reduced benefit, the negatives of marriage for heterosexuals. For decades, what we've now done is say, oh, it's okay. we'll just have what they've got. Where has the resistance to marriage as an institution gone? It hasn't just gone for most lesbians. It's never occurred to them if they're of a young generation. And for older lesbians who used to critique marriage, they now just think, well, this is great, we've got what they've got. They've given up. And let's face it, you know, marriage is said to be a great institution if you like living in institutions, It doesn't reflect the reality of the majority of people's lives. We were only invited to the party because it is a failing institution. There's one in two divorces in the UK. There are divorces of lesbians and gay men, which will get to, if not beyond, that figure. We should just abolish marriage for everyone and give the opportunity of civil partnerships for legal protection, next of kin rights, etc. But the number of women who are lesbians and gay men, who I speak to about this, who tell me that marriage is great because it means that they don't have to pay inheritance tax when one of them dies. I want to pay tax. I'm a socialist. So we have gone so deeply conservative we're not recognisable anymore.
0: You know, you came to Melbourne to speak at a a conference on the weekend on prostitution called The Oldest Oppression but many pro-prostitution groups regard sex work as a job like any other. Why is prostitution an oppression rather than a job?
1: Well, we have to look at who's in prostitution first of all. So we look at the poorest women, the most sexually abused women, those that have been abused throughout childhood, homeless women, girls and women from countries that are war-torn or post-conflict, Girls and women that have the misfortune to meet a pimp and pimps are always abusive, whether that pimp is a boyfriend, a husband, it it matters not if he's selling her. The the pro-prostitution lobby know that it's not a job like any other. They know because they know that the occupational hazards are unwanted pregnancy, death, HIV, rape and criminalisation. So they know it's not. What they do know, however, is that pimping is extremely lucrative and that the right of men to have sexual access to a certain subclass of women needs to be protected at all times. So prostitution is clearly a cause and a consequence of women's oppression. And it only exists because of male supremacy, male oppression. Women are a sex class that's subordinate to men. It's just within the whole spectrum of sexual violence against women and girls. It's no different as an abomination to keep women in our place and to shore up men's power than forced marriage, than female genital mutilation, than rape, than sexual abuse, than any other atrocity that happens to women.
0: Now, you've done quite a bit of research into prostitution all over the world Uh, So what was it that inspired you to do this research? Well, I've been a a feminist activist since
1: 1979. But, you know, 20, 20 odd years ago, I realised that this issue, prostitution and the sex trade, was the issue that had the most resistance to it from outsiders and and, and some feminists um, to be recognised as violence against women and girls that it's about male privilege and entitlement because of course money changes hands or the women don't make any money i don't know any women who've left the sex trade or in fact who were in it who were who were rich so it it became a priority for me because well it's the worst thing that can happen to a woman but also it is the the most difficult fight it's the most difficult issue because of the lies that are told about it being empowering for women. Nobody says domestic violence is empowering for women, or FGM, or forced marriage, or rape. Nobody says that, even if they think it. So the survivors of the sex trade, and I'm not one, but I've experienced male violence like most women, are the least supported within our community. But that's changing. That really is changing because the pro-prostitution lobby is being seen as the sadistic, cash-focused sociopaths that they are. And although they have held the upper ground in terms of influencing public opinion because they talk about decriminalisation, being safer for the women and that's how you reduce the harm, people are really getting fed up with men. Getting off lightly, and men being entitled and feeling entitled to buy and read the inside of a woman's body, so it's changing. And I think the reason why I, I wanted to do this book, that's coming out at the end of this year or maybe early next year, depending on how quickly I write, is because we need to to record that shift and to have it on record. So I've interviewed over forty survivors of the sex trade and about 150 other people that have various perspectives on it. But really the voice, the dominant voice, will be the voice of of the survivor, not in a sentimental way, but in a a highly structured political way, because she will explain the realities of the sex trade in all her 40-odd voices, and also the voices of the many, many women that I've interviewed, have talked to, are friends with, have listened to, um, who've come before them. So what were the main findings with your research? Well, I've just been doing some interviews here in, in Melbourne and also over in Auckland where we had a very brief trip. <laughs> findings are varied, but they all have one thing in common, that prostitution harms the women, that no woman wants to be in there, that it's a nightmare to exit because of the stigma that legalisation and decriminalisation entrench that harm and make it worse for the women and easier for the men, of course, than for the pimps. And that the only sensible and ethical solution to this is the Nordic model in which women, anyone selling sex, whether they're women, children, men, transgender people, are decriminalised, so they're not arrested, for any prostitution offences, where the men, and it is the men, who by sex are criminalised, that there is a commitment from governments to provide funding for exit services, not just from statutory agencies such as social workers, but from the experts, the feminists, peer support for the survivors, and programmes to educate the general public like we did when we banned smoking from public places, about the harms of paying for sex, of being in the sex trade. So prevention
0: as well as deterrence to the sex buyer. So how can we as a society support women in prostitution?
1: We can stop saying that they're lying.
0: We can stop telling
1: them that their boyfriend looks nice when um, we're running uh, harm minimization programmes where we hand out condoms and clean needles and the woman is telling us that her boyfriend is just waiting around the corner we can stop actually believing the lie she's telling herself but not call her a liar actually ask if she needs any support we can challenge, openly challenge the sex worker rights movement as they call themselves, the pro-prostitution lobby, when they tell us that decriminalising an abhorrent trade is good for women and we can stop, you know, we can can challenge the funders that are pouring millions of dollars into programmes that are supposed to reduce AIDS and HIV but that are effectively campaigning for legalisation of the sex trade. What we need to do, those of us that aren't experts in this and most aren't, need to just ask the question, what has legalisation or decriminalisation ever done for women? In Victoria, the laws here are an utter disgrace. Men are being told, boys are being told, from the day they are born, that renting the inside of a woman's body is a perfectly fine leisure activity. It increases violence against women, it does not reduce it. And we need to send a message to everywhere in decriminalised and legalised regimes that this is like legalising the worst kind of apartheid because this is sexual apartheid. We're saying it's all right for some women to literally be spittoons for men's semen. So we've got to actually call men to account and get the good men, get the men who would never dream of buying sex to ask their friends at work, in the pub, on the sports field, why would you do that?
0: So what's the what's the name of your book? And you tell us a little bit more about it.
1: Um, it's called <laughs> the It's called the Pimping of Prostitution: Abolishing the Sex Trade Myth. Mm-hmm. And I've, I wanted to get prostitution in the title because so many people use euphemisms for like it. Like sex work, yeah, or sex work, or they'll use euphemisms <laughs> such as sexual exploitation. Mm-hmm. Prostitution is a system, and I also wanted to get abolishing in there because. We are abolitionists, and we have a proud history of challenging the abuse and oppression uh, of women and girls. So we're proud abolitionists. The other side call us prohibitionists. We're anything but. This is not about prohibiting anyone. It's about liberating women, because prostitution actually affects all women. When men think that they have access to women because a bit of cash changes hands... And when they accept the fact that women can be bought and sold by a third party, it doesn't exactly help the sex buyer look at women with respect or as equal human beings. So we're all affected by it. But of course, the women who are the most affected are those currently in that. So we need to make sure that our government not just changes the law to criminalise these men, but we've got to get exiting services running for women
0: Great. Well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. My pleasure. And I've been speaking to Julie Bingle.